Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In three, two, one. Seven things you don't really need to know, but probably should. I'm Jamie Easton. This, this is the Sunday Sun. Hey, how are you doing? In today's episode, we hear from researchers who are testing elephants' personalities, putting an end to the secret plastic problem, and we speak to a climate scientist about the devastating news from the Amazon rainforest. But first, on this day in 1774, English chemist Joseph Priestley discovered oxygen. What did we do before then? With the Olympics still on our screens for the next few weeks, we'll no doubt be marvelling at the power, strength and speed of our favourite athletes. Events like the 100m sprint and Olympic weightlifting represent short bursts of intense energy. But when it comes to endurance events that last weeks or even months, how far can we push the human body? A study from Duke University that's been looking at energy expenditure is now shedding light on just how much we can actually push ourselves over long periods of time. This is Herman Ponzer, one of the leading researchers of the study. I'm a professor of evolutionary anthropology at Duke University, and I study human evolution and metabolism. As part of the study, Herman was on the scientific team for an ultramarathon event where he tracked the athlete's energy expenditure. And what on earth is an ultramarathon, I hear you ask? People ran from the Pacific coast to Washington, D.C. They did a marathon a day, six days a week, for five months. It's it's 3,000-plus miles 140 days. So that was the impetus for this whole study. We, we measured energy expenditures at the beginning of the race and at the end. And as you can imagine, they're burning tons and tons of calories every day. Herman then compared this data to a whole range of people, including triathletes, manual labourers, Arctic trekkers and pregnant mothers to figure out our endurance limit, which is the metabolic rate that one could sustain in an ultra-endurance capacity. It comes down to two and a half times your resting metabolic rate. What does that mean? So that means in in real world terms, most people are burning around 1,600 to 2,000 calories a day just at rest, just at rest, at baseline. And so multiply that by two and a half and you get the level at which your body's able to put calories back. So somewhere between 4,000 to 5,000 calories a day would be the maximum sustainable amount of energy expenditure at which you're able to meet the, the, you know, whatever you burn that day, you're able to put back at the end of the day. Given that the study also looks at pregnant women, what does it say about pregnancy and energy expenditure? Pregnancy takes mothers to the same brink, the same boundaries of of human ability um, as a Tour de France race. Mom's metabolic machinery is getting pushed to the limit. And it's just, I think, one more uh, reason that we have to be really sure that we get mothers all the nutritional help they need. It isn't easy, and I, I don't think that that's news to any woman who's gone through pregnancy. So for those of us who aren't running ultramarathons for a jolly, what's the takeaway? You don't have to run the, you know, an ultramarathon or be in the Tour de France to potentially you know, be kind of coming up against these limits, right? So I think that um, for a lot of people out there who are recreational athletes and love to push themselves, I think this tells you maybe some guidance about what you can expect your body to be able to handle over the long term.
As the world continues to warm, the agricultural systems we rely on are under increasing threat. For many arid reasons, that threat is even greater and rising temperatures could potentially lead to severe food shortages. Now, researchers at MIT have come up with a promising process for protecting seeds from the stress of water shortage during their crucial germination phase and even providing the plants with extra nutrition at the same time. My name is Augustine Junavashe and I'm a PhD at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Our research has been on improving plant germination and growth in Morocco, specifically in saline soils, salty soils, which will be about 50% of our soils in 2050 and currently 20% of our irrigated land and in drought conditions. To understand the scale, we use about $27 billion a year from salinity effects, which is a tremendous amount. According to Augustine, the process is simple and inexpensive and could be widely deployed in arid regions. It involves coating seeds in two protective layers. Taking inspiration from the natural coatings on a hipster fave chia seeds, the first coating is made to protect the seeds from drying out. It provides a gel-like coating that holds onto any moisture that comes along and envelops the seed with it. The second inner layer of the coating contains preserved microorganism nutrients to help them grow. Think of it as like built-in fertiliser. I mean, it all sounds great, but how successful has this fancy coating been? The findings we've had have been astonishing. We've been able to grow plants in saline and drought soils significantly better. The implications are huge. Firstly, there's a big shift to biologics, which include microbes, and we've found a better way to utilise microbes, not only in agriculture, but other fields. Secondly, we can make marginal lands that were not economic anymore productive. And finally, with an EU ban on intentional use of microplastics coming soon, there'll be a huge shift from synthetic seed treatments to biodegradable ones. Now, it might sound like food tech for the future to you, but Augustine would say otherwise. The technology we created is needed now. The sooner we adopt more climate resilient technologies, the easier it will be to feed the world and lower our environmental impact. I believe our solution will play a role in making agriculture more sustainable and efficient as we continue to feel the impacts of the climate. Still to come on the Sunday 7, we discover elephants have personalities and learn about the hidden plastic problem in period problems. It's no secret that elephants are incredibly intelligent creatures. With the largest brain of any land animal and three times as many neurons as humans, they've demonstrated their smarts time and time again. Scientists have already observed them using tools, understanding human body language, and with those big brains of theirs, we all know that they have incredible memories. But it doesn't stop there. Just as humans have their own individual personalities, new research from the University of Wyoming shows that elephants have personalities too, and they may play an important role in problem solving. To find out more, we spoke to Lisa Barrett, the lead author of the paper. To carry out this study, we used novel object tests, surveys with zookeepers, and observations of the elephants in their enclosures to score their personality. We used three novel foraging puzzles, like some dog toys you might be familiar with, only bigger and stronger, to measure their ability to problem solve and learn. Okay then, time for the elephant in the room. How exactly do you test an elephant for their personality? In humans, we can just take a personality test. But in non-human animals, researchers need to demonstrate consistency of an animal's responses over time or across different contexts. 
So for us, it was important to measure an elephant's response to not one, but three different novel objects. And similarly, to observe them over weeks instead of just a day or two, to be able to provide evidence of personality. I think it's probably fair to say that elephants can have any type of personality that we humans might have. From previous research, we know that traits such as aggression, dominance, sociability, lots of traits that we have in humans have been shown in elephants. So what did you find during the tests? How did their personalities help them along? We found that the elephants solved all three tasks but demonstrated learning, meaning they solved faster over time, on two of the three tasks. Personality traits like aggressiveness and activity were important predictors of problem-solving success. Okay, so now that we know that their personality can indicate how they'll solve a problem, what does it mean for these majestic mammals? This study has implications for wild elephants, which are faced with new problems that they need to solve all the time. And if certain traits enable elephants to overcome novel problems, elephants may be more likely to invade farmland and contribute to human-elephant conflict. So we really need more research now that can help managers predict which elephants might get past deterrence, or so that we can devote resources to track certain elephants, or determine which elephants to reintroduce back into the wild. Well, it sounds like Lisa and her fellow researchers have a uh, mammoth task ahead of them. Best of luck. Plastic is a pervasive part of modern life. And whilst we might pay attention to plastics in the kitchen and even try to recycle, you may not have thought about plastics in your bathroom, and particularly when it comes to period products. For the majority of people who menstruate, tampons, pads and other types of single-use period products are a regular part of everyday life. They're undoubtedly essential, but with most people trying to live sustainable and ethical lives, how do these fit in? According to research from Dame, the inventors of the world's first reusable period applicator, 44% of the women they surveyed are unaware of how much plastic goes into traditional period products, and that could be a huge problem when it comes to waste. When we really looked into it, we found out, you know, 100 billion period products are thrown away every year. And the majority of these are made of plastics or synthetics. And because they've touched blood and the body, they can't be recycled. This is Celia Paul, co-founder of DAME. When you think about the fact that this is an issue for half the global population, that's a huge amount of waste that we're not talking about. It's not like a coffee cup that people see out and about. It's not like a plastic shopping bag. This is a silent problem, but a massive one. And how much plastic is there in your average period product? Well, it's estimated that a pack of sanitary pads has up to four plastic shopping bags worth in it. That's a massive amount of plastic. And it's scary because this is something that we're not really thinking about. And, you know, we're so careful and cautious about what we're putting inside our mouths when we eat, but we're not really addressing this part. So most people have got no idea how much plastic actually goes into these products. How are people reacting when they find out? I think women are understandably really angry about the amount of plastic that they've been using. 
because there are so many people out there who are trying to lead more sustainable lives. There's a whole wave of products coming through which are greenwashing quite a lot, where they say that they're organic and they say that they have biodegradable um, applicators. But actually, when you look into it, are they 100% biodegradable? And it's difficult as consumers we are flung with you know quite a lot of different choice information and we don't really know what to do with it and we trust that these products that we're using are coming from a safe place and a good place so how can we make change how can we head towards a plastic free world first of all just talking about it when it comes to periods dame really advocates that people normalize this topic normalize this conversation we need to take this from being a taboo subject and make it normal because as soon as we make it normal people then feel more open to talk about it and more open to question the products that they're using we just need to get talking about it so that everyone can realize what they're using and what the other alternatives are Still to come on the Sunday 7, we hear about new dinosaur discoveries and I talk to a climate scientist about the fate of the Amazon rainforest right after this. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. You're listening to The Sunday 7. Follow us for your weekday news espresso, or even try our island edition. It's in all the usual places. It's a dinosaur. Uh That's right, it's a dinosaur. A new species of dinosaur has been identified down under. Known as Australotitan cooperanus, aka the Southern Titan, the long-necked herbivore roamed Australia nearly 100 million years ago. Normally, it's pretty hard to come by dinosaur fossils in Australia. Mountains and canyons help expose fossils more easily, whereas Australia is mostly flat. But new 3D technologies played a key role in these fossil finds. It's allowed researchers to analyse the giant bones and compare them with other species without moving them. This is an enormous animal. It's Australia's largest dinosaur species. And in fact, it's the largest animal to walk outback Queensland that we've ever known. This is Scott Hocknell, the lead author of the study looking at new dinosaur discovery. Along with colleagues including Robin McKenzie, they identified the new species after the skeleton was first discovered in the 2000s on a farm in Queensland, a state that's gained the reputation of Australia's dino capital. So how did they all end up here? Here's Robin. A geological um, event about 40 million years ago, a major fold happened through that area, an upward fold, and it actually fractured all that um, younger soil over the top of the dinosaur age soils. And over that time, it's just weathered away. And I guess an analogy would be to describe that area as a bit like a giant pothole into the past. For every kid who grew up watching Jurassic Park, this sounds like the dream job. There's nothing quite like walking up to a dinosaur site and seeing all this bone on the surface and not having a clue what type of animal initially 
because you've just spotted it is, and then you have a closer look, and you've got, you know, obviously I've got a little bit of knowledge about it all now, and you can actually pick up bits of bone and start figuring out what animal it is and what part of the body the bones are coming from. That's pretty exciting. But... With access to apps that instantly connects us to millions of users, much of our day is spent hunched over a screen. Adam Alter, author of Irresistible, The Rise of Addictive Technology and the Business of Keeping Us Hooked, explores, funnily enough, the rise of technology addiction, especially among teenagers. So nomophobia is, it's a new word that's been coined to describe no-mobile phobia. What that means is that when you think about, for example, your phone falling out of your pocket, tumbling to the ground and shattering into a million pieces, you should experience anxiety symptoms. And this is especially true among young people. I ran a study at one point where I asked young people, so you can either watch your phone tumble to the ground and shatter into a million pieces, or you can have a small bone in your hand broken. But for young people, this is actually a very difficult question. In my experience, about 40 to 50% of them will say, ultimately, I think it probably makes more sense to have a bone in my hand broken than it does to have my phone broken. As someone who, I'm going to surprise you here, is not a teenager, that sounds absolutely insane to me. Why on earth would they choose to save their phone but sacrifice their hand? Um, Apart from the fact that it's expensive to have a phone repaired and there's some time where you're without your phone, that is their portal to a social world that is very important to them. Being without that social world for a while is probably not as detrimental in some respects as being without a particular bone in your hand. Most of the time you can get by. So this sounds like a pretty serious addiction. So it can be someone who notices that over time their social relationships are degrading because they don't have consistent face-to-face contact with people and that's especially problematic for kids who need time in that real face-to-face social world because that's where they develop all the competencies of being a social creature the way to work out what other people are thinking those seem like obvious and easy to do things for most adults but for kids it's very difficult to do that and so you need face-to-face time to do that if you're spending all your time on screens because it's really fun to have to crush one more candy on candy crush or do whatever it is that you might be doing you're not developing those long-term competencies and therefore your long-term well-being is degraded. The Amazon rainforest. It's long been known as the lungs of the earth for its ability to produce oxygen and suck in carbon. But new research from the National Institute for Space Research in Brazil has confirmed that the Amazon rainforest is in deep trouble. It's now emitting more carbon dioxide than it's able to absorb. The giant forest had previously been a carbon sink, absorbing the emissions driving the climate crisis, but is now causing its acceleration. This is devastating news for both the environment and Luciana Garci, the researcher who led the investigation. The emissions from deforestation and the biomass burning are three times higher than the uptake that forests are doing. Amazon is not just a amount of carbon fixed in trees, you know, and that can make a nice service to us, compensate part of our carbon emissions. It is also a very complex system in a very delicate equilibrium. When we deforested and the deforestation is more concentrated in some areas, we are promoting a climate change, especially during dry season. Luciana, this must have been a real surprise. How did it make you feel when you found out? 
Ah, depressed. Depressed, we have these results since 2016. And it uh, was a big responsibility to say this for the world. We are making Amazon accelerate the climate change. It, it, it's much worse than we think. We need to start sinking nature like a domino. We need to stop thinking that the nature is simple and we can control. The best is we reduce the impact we do and try to fix part of the damage we've done in, in nature. That is a lot. Okay. Help me out here. From a political point of view, whose responsibility is it to sort this mess out? I, I think the biggest problem is when the, the political body, you know, from one nation, don't list the science, don't, don't have a, a nice decision based in, in the knowledge we develop about how the climate is changing. What are your hopes for the future of the Amazon rainforest? It's a nightmare what's happening today, you know. It's it's really difficult for Brazilian scientists today, you know, to, to see what's happening in society. I hope we construct a better future for us. This has been the Sunday 7. Wherever you're listening, do us a favour and hit the follow button. We'll be back tomorrow at 7am with the regular Smart 7. Have a great rest of your weekend. Produced and published by Daft Doris.